You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to episode 113 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Tony Lopes. Our guest on this episode is a New York-based director and producer. She's produced many documentary and TV projects and worked in many roles from director to production supervisor. She's also worked in strategic marketing and impact producing for both traditional and digital distribution companies and has created and managed dynamic multi-platform marketing strategies for theatrical, television, subscription video on demand, home video, and digital releases. She's developed cross-promotional plans with strategic partnerships that result in strategies, engaging content, sizzle reels, and trailers, and has analyzed data to improve digital campaigns for both brands and individual titles. She's also worked in strategic consulting and brand development, including production, marketing, outreach, and distribution strategy development. She specializes in documentary and independent films, TV projects, branded content, strategic marketing, and impact producing. Jessica Wolfson is a director, producer, and one of the principals for Lost Footage Films, a New York and Austin, Texas-based full-service production company specializing in field production and editing for all types of film and video projects. From feature and short documentaries to broadcast programs and commercials to compelling branded content, institutional videos, and web pieces, Lost Footage Films can do it all. She also teaches documentary film production at the New York Film Academy, and did many projects for IFC, the Independent Film Channel. She's joining us on this episode to talk to you about how you can take both the creative side of something you love to do and the business side of earning a living from it and combine the two to live the life of your dreams. Here are the self-made strategies of Jessica Wolfson. Yeah, so for for the listeners, because this may make it to the episode, Jessica and I met because she was teaching a class for Independent Filmmaker Project, right? Independent Features Project. Independent Features Project, uh, IFP.org, which is now the Gotham. And, um, you know, I took it because of my interest in filmmaking. And I I like both the creative and the business side, which is what we're going to talk about on this episode. But um, I thought it was really interesting that this was like the most passionate group of film budgeters of all time. Jessica did this really awesome exercise where we went through an actual film budget and people were passionately arguing these hypotheticals of what we got to keep in it and what we don't got to keep in it. And that group still meets. It's such a cool sort of um, ripple effect from a class of yours. And this is the most passionate you've ever had, right? Yeah, it is. And it's been, um, I mean, it's really fantastic to be on the emails and to see that everyone's become like a community and they're pitching their projects and helping talk about fundraising and different aspects of production. I mean, That is so much about what filmmaking and documentary filmmaking is. It's like building a community around you. So the fact that these, this group of people who, you know, are just strangers on, on zoom, but could (laughs) now have this, you know, weekly meetup of all of them. It it makes me so happy. Uh, And I hope to be able to join it. It's also this super collaborative energy, right? Which is, so cool to see. And I I personally think that's where the majority of business is shifting towards aside from mega business like Amazon or Walmart or whatever. But 
I, I think when you look at true entrepreneurialism, collaboration has to be a part of that, right? These days, do you feel that way, especially being from the film world? Yes, absolutely. I mean, for me, um, the reason why I'm a filmmaker is for the collaborative process. Um, you know, I, I started out as a, as a photographer and a photogra photography is a very lonely and singular person, you know, maybe you have one person working with you, but it's not a group. And when I moved into film and documentary, I really loved the fact that every single person on the team is coming with their own perspective, their own skill set, their, you know, um, and then it becomes such more of a team effort because I'm not an expert in you know, lighting, and I'm not an expert in sound recording, and I'm not an expert in editing. And so being able to work with people who are, and then all of us talking and sharing is why, you know, it's such a great and, you know, and creative medium. Yeah, I think so. That's the thing. And when we were talking originally, I was inviting you onto the podcast, you were saying you don't know if you're entrepreneurial. And I completely disagree. I think filmmakers who execute and who can produce actual uh, projects with budgets are the ultimate in terms of entrepreneurialism. And I actually think the film industry as a whole, if you look back at its history, if you if you look at filmmakers today, filmmakers like uh, Fellini or, or you know, uh, Hitchcock, Scorsese, take your pick, you know, they're all to some degree this balance of super creative, but then also figuring out the business side and how to pull off a project on a budget, which you're a master of, in my opinion. The way you taught the course was really awesome. So how did you develop both of those sets of skills in yourself? I think as an independent filmmaker, you are sort of thrown into this, right? You're forced to, like you say, become an entrepreneur because there's no other options for you. Unless you work for a big studio or even a big production company, I mean, they're even doing it, you know, in a micro aspect. If you look at Alex Gibney, who is an incredibly successful documentary filmmaker who has a huge team of people working for him, comes out with, you know, a ton of films a year. He, in the grand scheme of things, he's a micro small business. I mean, that's exactly what he is. Right. And then for a person like me, where I work, you know, primarily with a small group of people on my own or join forces with other people, I'm always doing that. I mean, I'm, you know, I always am trying to figure out how to do things. Um, I, that's the same way I teach. I mean, I teach from experience. Like I am not a trained teacher, and when I do teach things and I teach, you know, I taught this budget class. I also teach at New York Film Academy. I've taught um, in community college. I, um, you know, I teach from what I know and I teach from my own experience. And I feel like I have had the fortunate opportunity to have had many experiences since I've have a, you know, multi-page resume full of, you know, projects that I've worked on over the years. And so every single new project is just another learning experience, both for me and, you know, how I can kind of pay that forward and how I talk about projects. Now, when you're teaching your documentary film class for NF NYFA, what is sort of your process? Do you start with the creative, then work towards the business? Do you kind of mix along as you go and kind of give for the listeners who aren't familiar with film production in general, 
what's sort of the overall, you know, balance between that creative storytelling to captivate someone? Because a lot of documentary obviously is about some cause or some particular thing, some niche that's very specific to, you know, a pain point for a very small group of people usually in documentary film production. So what's, what's that balance for you? And then how do you teach it to others? Yeah. Um, I mean, it really depends on what kind of classes I'm teaching. I teach both pro uh, producing classes as well as directing classes. And, um, and the way New York Film Academy is actually structured is that people go in there for a multi-week or full year uh, program. So you're not, it's not like I'm teaching the same class every Tuesday night over, you know, for a semester. It's a, it's a, uh, it's, you know, it's a hands-on program where at, you know, you start out knowing very little and by the end of the class, you've made two or three or four films. And so it's a, like, you're building on, um, on these skills and you're building on this information. Um, so when I'm teaching, you know, so we, I always start out with just the basics and, you know, so when I'm teaching a product, a producing class, I usually teach, I start out saying, well, what is a producer and what does a producer do and who are the different types of producers in shows or in TV and, or in film. And so I'll go, okay, well, you have your executive producer and then you have your creative producer and then you have a line producer and it just keeps going down because I feel like no matter where you're coming from, it's really important just to have those basics. Same thing with directing. When we start with directing, the first thing I'm teaching is story. What is the story? And how do you understand and when you're making a film, always keep the ideas of story in your head. Is this, you know, wh who is the character? What is the action? What is the conflict? Um, you know, and, and that is really important because you have to really think, you know, like you said, a lot of documentaries are very issue based, but a documentary is still a film and a film is still entertainment. And unless you have a narrative structure to your film, you're not going to, you know, engage your audience at all. And so that's like the kind of the core of where we teach. Yeah, and I think there's an important lesson in that for people who are listening that aren't from the film industry and that that's that's that to captivate any audience and quite frankly, any business that you're in is all about captivating some audience to come give you money for something. Right. And it, it's those same story elements actually apply. So that's what I find really interesting sometimes when I'm in my lawyer mode, kind of with regular clients and talking to them about some of these concepts for their business. And, uh, and, and it's interesting. I also teach at Temple um, Entertainment Law to uh, business school undergrads. And um, I teach it from the same perspective. So it's very interesting. I teach them about the producer's role and then how that interplays with sort of legal issues within production. So there is a little bit more of a bent towards, you know, copyright issues or contractual issues or those kinds of things, but very similar from, from the initial perspective, at least. So that's awesome. So, okay, now walk us back to your photographer and you kind of work your way into film. Bring us back to that moment in your life and tell us how you got into the film world to begin with. Sure. Well, so I was born. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I went to, to uh, college for photography. It is something photography was always something that I was interested in. I think 
from like fifth grade, I was taking pictures and very engaged in high school. I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. And so, um, uh, actually to go back, I think that's kind of, this is kind of interesting is that when I was in high school and I was looking for colleges to apply to, I really wanted to be a photographer and I really wanted a photography, um, major and find a place that I could find photography, but I didn't want to go to art school. And the reason I didn't want to go to art school is because I knew that I already knew most of what I needed to know about photography. And I need, and I felt like for me, college was the place where you learn all about everything. And so when I was looking at schools, it was very important to find a, um, a liberal arts college that gave me the opportunity to broaden my mind and perspective, but also focus on that thing that I loved, the, the creative and visual. And so I ended up going to NYU um, because they had both a very strong photography program in Tisch, but they also have you know, tons of other schools and other opportunities to take other things. And so I ended up becoming um, a double major in photography and anthropology. And um, which, you know, is kind of like the absolute perfect thing for a documentary filmmaker. But I, <laughs> I didn't know I was a documentary filmmaker. What I thought I was, was a documentary photographer. And so what I did was I um, spent my all of my four years trying to figure out how to meld this idea of art photography, anthropology, and, but not photojournalism because it really wasn't, but it was like getting to learn about cultures. And so I, that's what I did. I spent a semester abroad in East Africa where I um, to, went through a uh, anthropology program from another college in the U S um, and did an anthropology program where I was just taking pictures of everything. Wow. Wow. And so it was like engaging my, and the way they worked was that you would go and you would go and live within a community and get to understand and learn about this particular community. And, um, and then I was photographing it at the same time. And so that idea I took with me. And so after college, I went to the Navajo reservation and I did the exact same thing. I lived on the reservation. I got to know the community and I photographed what I saw and what I was experiencing. And when I brought that all back, it was great, but there wasn't really like a place for it in the world of art and journalism and photography and what it was. And people couldn't really understand, okay, well, it's not fine art. So we don't want to have a huge gallery show, but it's not photojournalism. So we don't want to hire you at this newspaper or the New York Times. Like, what is this? And a friend of mine was like, well, you realize that basically what you're doing is documentary photography. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like you're doing, you're basically being a, a filmmaker uh, with a still camera. And um, at the time I had been working for um, a bunch of, uh, as a photo, as a photo editor for news, for um, magazines. And so I was working at Sports Illustrated, which was completely different from anything that I had um you know, it was not part of my sensibility at all. I know very little about sports. And my, my, uh, <laughs> my interview there actually was all about Britney Spears, not about sports. And at the end of the end of the end of the interview, the guy was like, Oh, Oh, I forgot to ask, are you a sports fan? 
And I was like, well, no, not really, but I played sports in high school. So I understand how like the mechanics of the games so I can look at a picture and, you know, identify the player. And he goes, all right, great. That's all we really. Um. But, you know, fast forward and I left the photo editing world and was, you know, like inspired now, like to start looking at um, documentary uh, filmmaking and who those people were. And upon um, suggestion of my boyfriend, now husband, um, it was he's like, you know, you should go and you should look, watch a bunch of films and then you should call up those filmmakers and ask them if you they need interns or if, ask them if that you can come and help them and work for free. And this is actually was amazing advice. And I pass this advice along to young people as well, because I called up a couple filmmakers who I absolutely loved. And I said, look, I have a summer where I I'm financially okay, can I help you? Can I carry your bags? Can I sit in your office and answer your emails? Can I figure out what this world looks like? And they all said yes, because, you know. Free help, yeah. Free help, exactly, and flattery. Like, I'm such a (laughs) (laughs) And that led to, um, that actually directly led to getting a job at the Independent Film Channel, IFC, which at the time was um, making six to eight documentaries a year. Wow. Wow. And so I joined at, you know, I was like 25 and I joined at, you know, a low level, but in a very small department, there were only two of us in the entire department. And so because there were only two of us, I was given an, an enormous amount of responsibility and access to this whole world of film and festivals and um you know the getting to really understand what people were doing on a way that i would have not had in you know in any other situation so we were making you know and so i was taking doing development taking pitches i was um, overseeing production i was working with the channels um pr and marketing and distribution teams to get the films out into the world. I was going to film festivals. I was, I was um, doing panels. I was like representing the network as the face of the network. Awesome. Awesome. And, you know, at 25, like that's crazy and super cool. And I was, and I did that for about four years until I was like, I love what you guys are doing. And I'm sitting in an office and listening to you talk about being in the field and listening to you talk about, you know, being out there and, and getting, you know, and actually making the thing. And I want to make, I really, I always wanted to make, and I wanted to create. And so I left that job, but I left that job with an incredibly huge, you know, roster of contacts and experience. And I started doing, um, you know, independent producing and worked with a lot of first time filmmakers because even though I was almost a first time filmmaker, I wasn't because I had, you know, about 15 films under my belt at that point. So, so let's talk about that amazing story, by the way, but let's talk about that transition into becoming an independent uh, film consultant at that point, right? Working with independent filmmakers. So now you've got this roster of, 
contacts. And by the way, you worked with a lot of really cool directors, John Favreau and a bunch of other really famous names and people. Um, who was your favorite that you worked with while you were at IFC? Well, I mean, I worked with a lot of really amazing documentary filmmakers, Kirby Dick and um, Julie Goldman and, you know, um, and all and Liz Garbus and all of these people. And I would have to say, though, my absolute favorite person that I got to spend time with was John Landis. Wow, who, really? Yes. John Landis, who you don't know as a documentary filmmaker, who you know from Blues Brothers and, you know, Trading Places and right. all of these amazing 80s movies that I was huge fan of. <laughs> And John had made a film called Slasher, which is a documentary about a used car salesman. Wow. And um, it was playing festivals. And um, the network basically was like, okay, Jessica, you're John's a liaison to all these festivals, which means you and John are going to festivals together. That's awesome. <laughs> so I got to hang out with him. And this man has the most amazing stories about his career, which is just incredible. I mean, Tuesday lunches with Alfred Hitchcock wow. to watching movies as a kid. And it was the only per people in the theater was him and Jim Morrison. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, to like, you know, James Brown stories, which he had <laughs> a million of. And so just- So John Landis was hanging out with James Brown a whole bunch of times. <laughs> that's awesome john landis james i mean he he just is so well because you know because of blues brothers because you know all of these movies he was just so well connected and so generous with his time and it didn't feel it didn't feel awkward or didn't feel like i was you know an assistant or i was a burden i was just the network person who was there to like you know comp his dinners and hang out with him <laughs> so that's so cool it was so cool I mean, that was definitely hands-on the coolest. That's amazing. Really, really amazing. All right. So now you're transitioning into independent filmmaking and consulting. And first of all, how and why did you take the leap? Because I think a lot of people right now are kind of struggling with this transition post-pandemic, right? And we're still in the pandemic. But I mean, now that we're kind of, this is what we're doing from here on out. A lot of people, you know, students and stuff like that entering the working world have lost internships, have lost opportunities. So they're kind of trying to figure it out. But even people who are mid or senior level in their careers are potentially losing their jobs or concerned about job security and kind of trying to figure it out. And I think this is an important time to take a step back and reflect on what skills you do have and what you can do to leverage those things for your own benefit. So you get to the point where you've developed this, you know, contact list essentially of people you can call and kind of reach out to for either advice or just a quick question, which there's a huge importance to that, right? It's not what you know at the end of the day. It is in fact who you know. So the old adage sticks, but you decide for whatever reason to go become an independent film consultant what was that transition like and how did you make sure that you were successful at it? Um, well, to be honest, it was really scary. I am not a person who's great with transitions and it takes a lot of, um, you know, willpower mm -hmm. for me personally to be able to do that. So um, I think I had been thinking about it for many months and I felt like the time was right um, for two reasons. One was I felt like I had, um, come to a come to kind of a crossroads in my 
job where I felt like, okay, well, I can stay here and I see the small steps of trajectory moving forward or, and to be honest, my, my boss gave me this advice. He said, the, the best way to advance your career is to move out and up. And I was like, great, I'm quitting. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the advice. Well, that's great. I'm I'm out of here. Um, And, you know, and so, you know, and I, it made me think really hard and, and I saw, you know, and the people I worked with were amazing, but these were people who's like, this was their first job and it was 10 years later and they were still in that job. And I just didn't see that for myself. I didn't see myself as a corporate person in a corporate job for the rest of my life. I had already had a career prior to that, you know, in the photo editing world. And so it wasn't like, this is like my safety net. I was in it and, you know, I saw what the new opportunity was. So when I left, you know, I had a lot of meetings. I talked to a lot of my contacts. I said, you know, if I go out into the world, what am I, you know, what is this going to look like for me? And I got a lot of really great advice. And honestly, a lot of people being like, come on and join this project or join this project, or I'll introduce you to this person. So, um, you know, and it it was scary. I mean, it's scary to go from a full-time job to a freelance life. Um, But, you know, making that leap. And every time somebody quits their job, my first response to them is always congratulations. Because you can, you know, that once you've actually made that really scary move, like all karmically, everything starts falling into place. And so it did. I mean, it really, you know, did. And I got to go, I got to work on a bunch of different projects just from the beginning at once and talk to a lot of different, you know, and so the way I was able and the way I have been able to make a sustainable career out of this is that I'm always working on multiple projects and I'm that are always at different levels and some of them don't have any funding and it's just a project that I've gotten involved with and really love or it's something that I has you know or has different levels of funding and I'm able to you know pay my rent while working on this in order to work on that and so it's a balance and it's but the thing is that I feel like I've been so fortunate is that I've always worked on things that I really like because I I will say no to projects that I'm not excited about because it doesn't, you're not, you know, this is not a lucrative business. And so you're not, unless you're super passionate about the story that you're telling, like there's really like no reason for you to be involved in telling that story. But again, a lot of similarities to an entrepreneurial lifestyle in general, right? Until you make a big break, until Jeff Bezos becomes Jeff Bezos of Amazon, that's a lot of sitting in his garage trying to figure out how to hawk books online, right? And people forget that. And uh, so I think there's important lessons and important things to be taken out of that. Now, how did you, two things, one, keep what's now known as imposter syndrome, right? But back then was something else uh, at bay. And then two, how do you keep yourself, how do you select the projects to say no to? I feel like I've always had imposter syndrome. <laughs> we all do. That's the thing. Everybody do. does it. So I'm really curious about how each individual person kind of deals with it. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I've always felt like someone's going to be like, what in the world are you doing? 
you're like, get out of here. You're not qualified for this. And, and since, and I feel like that's actually gone away the more I teach because the more I teach and the more I speak authoritatively about things and people like you who take my classes are not like, what is she talking about? She's completely nuts and an idiot. <laughs> Cause I always worry. I always worry you're going to have someone in the room being like, um, <laughs> no, that's actually not how it's done. <laughs> so you're doing it totally wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been, it's, you know, the older, I guess the older you get, the more confident you are. And the I less think, you care. The less you care. <laughs> you're just like, whatever, I'm going to go do this thing. If but you don't, I, like you it, know, you don't like it, I still have my aspirations and I still feel like I'm at a certain level in my life, my career. And I would, you know, obviously like to be at a higher, I'd like to be Jeff Bezos. I mean, why we'll not? Get we'll get there. Yeah. I don't think I'm, you know, I'm there quite yet, but. So it's a day by day process that you're kind of, you know, you have to massage yourself every once in a while. There are going to be good days. There are going to be bad days. They're not all going to be sunshine and skipping down the street because you're doing something you love. The passion is what keeps you coming back for more beatings, I think, right? <laughs> it's always the beatings. Right, right. Um, you know, and and it's funny because, you know, my husband is also a filmmaker. And so we both, and he's a, he's been a freelance his entire career. And so we live in this world that is so financially somewhat unpredictable right, and right. precarious. And on good days, it's awesome. And we're feel comfortable and great. On bad days, it's very stressful. And, um, you know, if somebody offered me a full-time job that sounded awesome, I may take it, you know, because like... The struggle you know, is real. Yeah, totally. And and I think it's an important thing to really acknowledge and talk about because I don't think people do. I think now that, you know, being freelance feels more normal, people are having those conversations. But every time a job, you know, when I'm in the middle of a job, the world is awesome and this is my career forever. When something is over, I was like, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm going to do with my right, life. Right. Nobody ever is going to hire me again. I mean, I still go through that wave of emotion and then i look at other freelancers who are like oh i'm going to india for three months between jobs to go surfing and i'm like who are you <laughs> <laughs> like why can't i go to often you know do something crazy That's awesome but um i've never i've never been able to do that because i've always been too nervous about what that next thing is um and then your second question is about how do I choose projects? Yeah, how do you say no to one? Because, it, and it piggybacks off of that if you think about it, because you've got this whole thing about, you know, where's that next project coming from? What's the next thing that we're going to do? How do we pivot, basically? How do we stay in the forefront of what we're doing? Again, applicable to not only the film industry, but entrepreneurialism in general. So how do you, at the times especially, where you're kind of like, where's this next project coming from? say no to a project that comes your way? Um, I've been re I have learned over the last, I would, I'll say nine years because it's my son is nine. So I have learned since I've had ch children that I cannot take on more than I can chew. And I've had to create priorities for myself. So before I had kids, there would be points where I'd be working on like 10 projects at the same time. 
and they'd be in different stages of development and they'd be different things, but it was still 10 projects. And, you know, I, people would be like, you are crazy. Like, how do you even focus on one? And I was like, no, I'm really good. I'm very good at you know, compartmentalizing everything. But once I had kids, I realized like, I, I don't have that uh, ability to do that anymore. So, um, because my priorities have shifted, but also just my, um, my attention has just like, right. so I realized that I like the maximum projects I can take at a time is now three. And I'm making sure that I'm giving myself this limit of three. And so that has to be three projects and what do they look like? And, you know, and kind of make a calendar for myself in terms of, okay, well, this is a, this much time and this much time. Um, and then the other thing is, do I feel passionate about the story this person is trying to tell? And do, is this the right film for me? Do I have the, A, the skill sets, B, the interest to, um, to get involved? I mean, I've said no to projects because I think the subject matter was too, like, I didn't either, I didn't like the subject matter or was maybe too triggering or too emotional for me in certain ways. Um, and I've said no, because I just, if I can give myself the limit of three projects, like I want to, you know, keep, I want to be very strict about that. Cause I, I would do have a tendency to just say yes to a bunch of stuff. But I mean, I said no to something yesterday and, but my no is always like, I can't do it, but let me like pass that forward or give you share my information and knowledge to someone else who I think would be able to do it. Which is a great relationship builder because you basically become the connector for that person. And then when they have more projects, they will come back to you and kind of keep sort of feeding your network pool. Plus you're handing the project off, building some relationship capital with somebody else that you're keeping in the loop as well. Exactly. Awesome. Exactly. And because I hope that, you know, people will reciprocate and they do back to me. And that's the whole point. I mean, like, that's what we're talking about with the community. It's always going back to that idea of community. Like we're all supporting each other in different. Yeah. That's an interesting concept. And I think you're right in that, you know, filmmaking is more representative of that than traditional entrepreneurialism. Not necessarily true. I'm kind of speaking in generalities here, but it's more about community and filmmaking because you need all these people from your sound person down to your, you know, best boy or whatever. And your, your gaffer and all of those people are so important to the creation of the final project that you want to keep them in your good graces, at least most of us. And, but in the entrepreneurial world, it's kind of flipped on its head and people think more of building a network rather than an actual community. And I think in that sense, it sounds more and a lot of times is more transactional. And, you know, for me, at least, I read a book called The Go-Giver, which if you've never read, you, you should check out. It's really good. It's short. Uh, and it's all about that, about focusing on kind of giving first and becoming more of this connector and sort of reciprocal style individual and how that sort of pays itself forward rather than thinking of things in terms of transactions. And I did this for this person. Now I expect something in return or vice versa. Somebody did something for me. So I better hope, you know, hurry up and repay that. And I love the way that you keep saying community building because it makes a massive difference when you look at it from that. I have no expectation of return necessarily. We're collaborating to see this project through to the end. Yeah. 
Um, there was a, I read an article about some very successful um, internet mogul who has now quit his career and he now pay, that is what he does. He's a connector. So he oh, says that awesome. every day he wants, he wants to connect at least two, may create at least two or three relationships with other people. So he has all these people coming to pitch him their new startups and his, what he does is he passes those forward to other people he thinks would be good connections and relationships with. And I love, and when I read that, I loved that idea because, you know, he's, he's not asking for anything in turn. He's, you know, a billionaire, he's fine. He retired on purpose, but so, you know, he's like passing that gift that he's received forward to others to really help them. And then they will, you know, it all comes back, right? There's, there is a reciprocation. It might not be a financial or it might not be like something, but there's always a reciprocation. Well, you talked a little bit about karmic energy, right? I mean, if you want to look at it from that perspective, if, it, if that's your fancy, there is some sort of form of energy that you're putting out into the universe and you're going to get some form of that back. Right. I, I totally am. I mean, I, I am a believer of karmic energy to the skeptical New Yorkerness that I am. <laughs> like, I've never read The Secret. I don't know anything about like the man. I hear lots of manifestation buzzwords floating around, but I am totally um, believe in karma where if you make a big move in your life, everything else ends up falling into place. So quitting a job, you know, ending a relationship, moving, like when we moved, I was so terrified. I'd literally never lived anywhere else in my life. And then we moved and then, you know, good, all these good things happened. And it wasn't, it wasn't as terrible and scary and awful. But I will also say that, you know, the thing about um, the documentary film community, which I think is also different from the narrative film community, is that because we are kind of the lowest in the totem pole of, you know, six economic success. I mean, there's a lot of people who are very successful in their careers, but, you know, you don't go into documentary filmmaking to make money. Right. And I mean, that's like, just don't do it. It's not going to happen. So don't do it. Yeah, it's it's look money in the film industry comes from ticket sales, butts and seats and concessions, all of that stuff. All of that stuff leads to the end result, the big box office numbers. And unfortunately, documentary films don't fill, you know, uh, triplexes and all sorts of other cinemaplexes all over the country. It just doesn't happen. There was a, a documentary done by Dave Grohl called Sound City, I think. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I love the film, and it's Dave Grohl, the lead singer of the Foo Fighters. It's extremely well-produced, great production value, you know, just laundry list of famous musicians all about this studio that I don't want to ruin the film. Go out and check it out. It's well worth the watch. But you, if you go and Google, you know, how much it cost and how much it made in the box office, I think it lost 50 grand or something like that. I'm sure, I'm sure it did. And, yeah. you know, and, but Dave is okay. We're right, not working right, Dave. Right. But also he didn't make that movie to make money. He made that right. movie to tell that story. Out of passion, and, right. you know, and so it's like where, so it's so much, it's documentary filmmaking is about where your priorities lie in the world. But it, also what I was saying is that because we are the lowest in the totem pole in the world of Hollywood or independent film, we have to have a community because we can't survive without a community. And 
you know, and our entire industry is based on word of mouth. And so if you are paying things forward, if you are kind to your crew, if you are recommending people for jobs, like that all comes back to you anyway, because, you know, you want to be a good manager, a good human, good colleague on set, because if you're not like people will recognize that very easily and quickly, and you're going to have a very hard time like yeah. making a successful career out of it. Yeah. yeah. So you've won a ton of awards. You've had a really successful career, at least from my perspective, and you're a mom of a nine-year-old how, and a five-year-old, two kids. So how have you pulled it off? And hats off, first of all, to being able to do that. I know it's extremely difficult for moms to do what you're doing especially when, like you said, I mean, you're running an entrepreneurial career. Both of you are entrepreneurs in the household. It's brutal. So how have you done it? And I, I would, I will first and foremost say that I have an amazing partner who is a hundred percent like equal. Like we walk into every situation on with an equal footing and that he takes up as much responsibility in our home and our life as I do. So it's not a gen, you know, I have a lot of friends who have a more gender disbalanced relationship with their partners. And I'm very fortunate not to have that. I don't think I could have this career if that was the situation. The other thing is that I'm very organized. And like I said, I compartmentalize everything that I do. And, you know, the reason why I teach a budgeting class and the reason why I get nerdy and excited about budgets is because I make spreadsheets for everything. And so, you know, this is how I'm able to organize my personal life, my professional life, you know, just to be able to, you know, keep it on the rails because it's hard. And it, you know, this past year has really explained to so many people how hard, you know, this, you know, just being existing in the world is and existing with people, you know, relying on you for responsibility is. And um, yeah, I mean, I um, also moving, I think was a big, that was a big help. I was, I, you know, I grew up in New York city. I spent my entire life there, except for the last two years. And I didn't realize what a stress case I was until I left New York. And I didn't realize how um, manic and stressed out I was until I was able to actually go somewhere where I could take a breath. And now that I'm able to take a breath, I'm also able to like have much more perspective on what that means in terms of a work-life balance. So in addition to your filmmaking, though, you also do impact marketing campaigns. First of all, let's talk about what impact marketing is and then how you got into that to begin with. Yeah. So um, there is this whole uh, part of um, the distribution process called where um, people want to have an impact campaign for their film. Uh, so if you have a film with a social issue message, say, trying to save the whales, for example, um, then not in addition to releasing your film in the theaters or digitally to have people see it, you also are trying to, um, make, you know, ch make chain actionable change. And so often people will do an impact producing campaign where they will go out and say, okay, so where are the organ, who are the organizations who are saving the whales? How do I partner with them? How do I get their 
audience to watch my film? Do we need, what kind of petitions do we need? What kind of um, legislation needs to happen and how can we use our film as a, uh, a launching point to bring awareness for a particular issue? So that has um, become very important in social driven documentary filmmaking. I do something is slightly different than that. What I do, I don't work particularly on campaigns, but what I do is I take that idea. And if there is an audience for a film that feels really, you know, direct, but tapped and perhaps not how you would not get them or get their awareness through normal marketing and publicity channels, what I do is I reach, I do direct marketing to those groups. So a good example is if there's a film about a population, let's say um, the film is about uh, Chinese music, for example. Well, then I am, and, and the film's being released in the US. So then I will go and I will look to say, who is interested in Chinese music in these particular cities where the film is being released? And how do I let them know that this film exists? So I will go to the Chinese community or a music school or, you know, a community center or perhaps a church or, you know, a religious institution. And I'll say, hi, I want to let you know that there is this film coming out that I think your community would be really interested in. And I want to let you know that you should go and see it or bring it to your institution and let's, you know, create, let's host a screening for you, or it's going to play in this movie theater. I can help you get group sale tickets for it. And so it's very much direct marketing, but neat, but in a niche way and looking at communities in that. And so that can broad. So I end up working less for the filmmakers directly in their campaigns, but mostly for distribution companies. So Perfect. I'll have independent distribution companies um, such as Kino Lorber or, um, you know, movie theaters like Film Forum has I've worked with them. I've worked with um, Zipporah Films, which is Frederick Wiseman's film company. I've worked for other different bigger campaigns where my, where I will, will really focus on that butts in seats aspect or the, how many, um, uh, community screenings can we get within, you know, in these particular communities? And so it's, um, yeah, go, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. Oh. So it's, um, it is something that I started doing, um, kind of, halfway, like early on in my career, um, I got randomly called to um, help a, a film that was being released in the theaters that was six hours long. Uh, the filmmaker needed help trying to figure out how to get, you know, an audience for it. And so I did this campaign for her um, where, and this, where I not only reached out to these communities, but I also found uh, nonprofits and different organizations whose messaging seemed to, to um, parallel with the film and said, hey, do you want to partner with this film to, you know, get it out into the world? That's awesome. So is that usually paid in a contingent compensation kind of way, depending on how many butts you get into the seats? Or is that more of an upfront fee kind of thing? 
it's an upfront fee. I would never recommend you do it in a contingent kind of way because you cannot guarantee the people are going to show up right. at the movie theater. And, you know, if you can get 10 people in your movie theater, that's awesome. That's, I mean, that's as much work as you would if you got a hundred people in, right, right. um, you know, the, uh, the rate of return for this is not great. I would say 10 to 15, maybe 20%. Um, but even then that's 20% of people who aren't reading the trades and aren't watching trailers and aren't, you know, focused on this independent film because, you know, they have a Marvel movies are coming out and that's really all they see. And they don't know that it even exists in their community. So even so, even though there's a, not a great rate of return, it's, you know, it is still a impactful and important um, because the people who do respond are incredibly passionate and that leads to other things and that leads to audience building. And for documentary film, audience building is so important. Um, one thing that I do teach often is a distribution class where I tell filmmakers that um, as an independent filmmaker and let, you know, if, if your film is not getting into the Sundances of the world, but playing the smaller festivals and you still want it released, the best thing to do when you approach a distribution company is to um, present your audience and your and all the work that you've already done. Because a, a distributor is going to be much more interested in your film if you can guarantee, you know, 10,000 people are going to watch your movie. Right. Rather than not having any you know, audience built prior to the release of the film. Right. And what, when you're saying the rate of return is low, what you mean is of eyeballs that see the marketing campaign, the actual ones that show up are going to be around 10 to 15%, which isn't the worst thing, actually, to be frank, because as you said, these are people that were unlikely to get exposed to it to begin with. So it's all extra gravy, so to speak. So, yeah, and I work, I have a, um, a, a friend who does this as her, you know, she has a, business. And so she'll bring me on a lot of times to help work on different campaigns. And she'll do more of the big strategic marketing, reaching out to the organizations where I'm doing like the on the ground grassroots marketing, really targeting the, the people, the individual people. Now, is this something that could also be beneficial to and would you work with specifically nonprofit organizations or other smaller organizations who are cause oriented and are looking to do some form of project. Now, I guess to a degree, they would have to be looking at doing some form of awareness film, whether it's a short film or something along those lines, right? To give you something to work with in terms of distribution and finding an audience for it. But if they were going to do some form of a larger campaign, would that be something you'd work on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really helpful to have, um, you know, something to like a film, for example, or an event. I've done a lot of event, same things with events, um, to drive, you know, the audience to, um, that's incredibly helpful. But, and, but I feel like this, the, this model of marketing is translatable across the board. And it, you know, as long as you have something and, and as long as you're able to identify your audience and right. figure out who, you know, there are certain films this works really well for and other films they don't. And I, and I find that narrative films are much more challenging unless there's a real theme in that narrative film 
but you know, a you know, a romantic comedy is a lot harder to direct market. Right. To. Cause it's so broad. Exactly. Right. Right. Awesome. A, yeah. But if it's a, you know, romantic comedy with a diverse group of people or, you know, a specific, um, you know, group of people like that's much easier because people like to see themselves represented on the screen. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Jessica, thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's really cool. Yeah. Great. So I think that's uh, something we can easily cut into your um, your episode at large so that we, we did cover that in the episode. But that's cool. So what's the matrix of sort of your business in terms of production work for documentary, et cetera, versus this impact marketing? It depends on the when and where. I would say 15 to 20% is the marketing and the okay. rest Cool. Awesome. And in terms of like budget, because now I'm thinking about this AACR project that we're working on. And um, I think the more we can bring to the table in terms of here's an option, you know, that will add significant value to the release of your podcast. Because one of the struggles for podcasts, quite frankly, is um, finding your target audience that's going to want to listen to your podcast, especially with competition ever increasing exponentially in the podcasting space. Um, and, you know, just getting them not only to listen, but to subscribe, like be a part of that community that you're trying to build out of the podcast. So mm -hmm. what in terms of cost, just to give me an idea, would an organization be looking at? You know, it, it's hard to answer that because it depends on like what, like how many, how long you would need it for. I mean, normally when I'm working on projects, there's a specific date that we're working towards or set of dates or right. something that we can work towards so that, um, and the way I work, and I often, like when I work with my friend Liz, who does this, you know, as full-time as a career, I will like, I'll kind of say, okay, well, I can, I can dedicate 10 to 15 hours a week to this up, you know, for the next three to five months. Right. Because we're pushing towards a specific thing. Right. Right. It's, I think that's, I think it's a different kind of like model. If no, you, it's, it's similar if you're, because if you're like trying to just build an audience. Kind of no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, similar. No, no, exactly what I'm sorry. I didn't describe it right. The, the no, no, no. exact thing that you're talking about, because we're talking about, you know, okay, in pre-production, we're developing the show and kind of figuring out what the episodes look like for season one, let's say, or whatever. And yeah. uh, season one, series one, whatever you want to call it. And you're and, pushing towards a launch. And you're pushing 